Well, if you would, open your Bibles, um, and I better get my phone. That clock in the back, if you try to turn around to see how long I'm preaching, it won't do any good, because according to that, I could preach for six hours, and time will not pass. Um, so, But I'm going to put this here so that I at least have uh, some semblance of order in my mind about what the time is as we work our way through this. But if you'd open your Bibles, um, I want to talk... This morning, we're in our series, Advancing the Gospel of the Kingdom. We've talked about a whole variety of things, but one of the things that is essential to our understanding what the gospel of the kingdom, how it's supposed to impact our lives, is to talk about what I'm calling gospel economics. And truth be told, I could, there's enough material in the Bible, certainly, to I could do three sermons on this topic, but then I'd have people saying, you just talk about money all the time. So I'm going to do it in one, and we'll just spend a little bit of time on, on each of those, but... I trust you'll, it'll help you by, by taking them all at once to get a, a broader view of how the, the, the Bible speaks about in, in very different ways about um, uh, how we use our possessions and money. Uh, so if you would, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you'd open our hearts and minds to understand your word and that we would understand Christ's claim on our lives and what that means, even in how we use our stuff, Lord. Be present by your Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, as we've been talking about in this series, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God, that it, the kingdom of God is near. And, and that gospel is actually the gospel we are to proclaim, is that Christ has come as King. And there's an opportunity in the proclamation of the person of Christ for us to enter into his kingdom through faith. We talked about that, and I think it was our second message um, in this series. And if one looks at the promises in the Old Testament about this coming kingdom of God, you might make some conclusions, which Sigurd Grindheim accurately described in his book titled Living in the Kingdom of God, A Biblical Theology for the Life of the Church, and only give you that whole title because it's worth reading, I, you know, just to throw it out there for those interested. But he says this in his introduction, where God is king, there are no evil powers. I often dream of such a society, a society without evil, a society ruled by God. I imagine what the world would be like if everyone did good all the time, if everyone, if every individual always did what God wants us to do, if everyone obeyed the golden rule, do to others what you would have them do to you. First of all, he continues, many people would be out of work. Take locksmiths, for example. You would never need to lock your door. No one would ever steal anything. And people would come to visit only when you really wanted to see them. Can you imagine that? <laughs> In a society like that, all insurance companies would be unnecessary. You, would, you simply would not need insurance. If you needed anything at all, your friends and neighbors would provide it for you free of charge. I mean, like Micah, you'd be out of work because nobody would be sick. I mean, imagine that, okay? Um, I continue with his quote. I'm sorry, I digressed. If you think that no one who lived in such a world would ever want to work, since they could have everything for free, you would be mistaken. People would work harder than ever, not out of the desire to acquire more wealth for themselves, but in order to give everything away to those in need. If all people always did the will of God, the world would be a happy place. If God would rule as king and everyone would do as he says, our planet would be a paradise. 
And that indeed is true. In fact, we're called to pray that God's kingdom come and that we do His will on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Which means we are called to live, not only pray, but the answer to that prayer is that we in fact live God's will as if we're in that paradise described. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but that would be crazy. I know. <laughs> Which is why so many of us don't do it, because it requires faith. We must, indeed, live by faith. Now, one might ask, what does the coming of God's kingdom have to do with economics if the previous description by Sigurd uh, Grindheim doesn't convince you that it has to do with economics? I think there's more that could convince us. In other words, what does it have to do with money, if we want to put it real simply? What does the coming of God king, God's kingdom have to do with money? Well, our attitudes toward money and possessions, how we use them, according to Jesus, will be dramatically impacted by His reign. As illustrated in that description that we read a moment ago. Jesus addresses money more than anyone in the Bible. Even when uh, people were asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we would give them like four steps that they need to acknowledge, a prayer that they need to say, right? Maybe we'd follow that with some things they should read on a daily basis or so on and so forth. But not Jesus. What did he do? He said, well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. You imagine if an altar call was done that way, people come forward, you know, if you want to accept Jesus, okay, now go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Like you'd, you'd get run out of your church, <laughs> for sure, right? Why did Jesus focus so much on money and possessions? Which, by the way, he focused on it a lot. A lot. And why did he do so? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, according to Matthew 6. And you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon's just the, the, the name, the formal name for money that was the money God. We worship the money God. You can't worship God and the money God at the same time. And so that's an issue that has to be addressed, which is another way of simply saying you can have no other gods before you. Kevin Rowe rightly describes the mission of the church, saying that we are to bear witness to the inbreaking reign of God and all that we do and are, to be a living picture of and testament to God's reign. Well, there's no way that we could be a witness to the inbreaking reign of God to be a living picture of God's reign unless and until we submit our understanding and use of our money and possessions to God's reign in Jesus Christ. We, as a church, must allow Jesus' prophetic vision to shape our imaginations into conformity with God's perspective of what the right way of doing things is in order that we might see how to live as a witness, as a testament to God's reign, His kingdom. Amen? So this morning I want to look at three things in regard to kingdom economics. Um, three headings are going to be manna economics, first fruit economics, and jubilee economics. And so if you would read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, I am reading a lot of text this morning, but I think we can make it through in sufficient time. But 2 Corinthians 8.13, I know some of you thought that did not sound convincing, but I'm sorry. Our desire is not 
And this is under the heading Mana Economics. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, and so in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. So let me pause there briefly. We're going to read in chapter 9 in a moment. But that last verse, verse 15, 815, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. That is a quote out of the book of Exodus. I believe it's chapter 16, and I want to say verse 18. In the account where God is describing to the people how they're to work with this manna. They wake up in the morning, and there's food on the ground. And so what's everybody want to do? They want to go out and hoard as much of it as they can. Stick it in their closet, stick it in the, a hole in the ground that they dig inside their tent, whatever. They're going to collect as much as they can so that they have more than enough. You know, like we do before a hurricane comes, we'd go to the stores and we clear the shelves. We don't really care about what anyone else has when they get to the store. Or toilet paper, for example. Like we're going to get sick, so we're going to need like mass loads of toilet paper to the point that we can't keep the shelves stocked. And we look in our garage and we have like piles of toilet paper, you know. Not ours. My wife's like, that's not in our garage. No, no. <laughs> but you just go pay, get a pack and you know. But that's what they were doing with the manna. And so the Lord says, no, no, that's not how this is going to work. Every day you go collect enough for what you need. And if you collect too much, it's going to turn to maggots. And so you've got to leave for everybody else to collect what they need. Now, just because you're faster, smarter, stronger, or whatever doesn't mean you get more. It means that God has gifted you so that you can help provide for those who aren't faster, stronger, and smarter. Because you're made in God's image, and guess what? That's what he does for you. Because guess what? He's faster, smarter, and stronger <laughs> than all of you. And me too. It's just the way this works. And that's why I call this a manna economy. That's what... Paul is rooting that in as this principle there in chapter 8, verse 15 that we read. Now, picking up in chapter 9, verse 1, we could read both chapters. They're entirely to this topic. But there is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. This is an offering he's collecting for the poor in Jerusalem. For Christians, poor Christians. For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year... You and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this manner should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of not of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
You know, I love how everybody takes that verse about not giving under compulsion, and they use that, and it's in the middle of an entire paragraph, which we would call compulsion, (laughs) if we're honest. It's probably one of the most compelling paragraphs in the New Testament. I'll illustrate that. I'll go back over it in just a moment. And God is able, verse 8, to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform will, uh, is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies, listen to this, the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Paul's appeal to the Corinthians regarding this offering for the poor covers all of chapters 8 and 9. But even the part we read is sufficient to get the point of what he's driving at. This manna economy has nothing to do specifically with the church organization getting funding. This is about the needy among God's people and how we care for them by not hoarding our goods to ourselves but sharing generously with all. Christ's kingdom offers a solution to an age-old problem, poverty. The world has been offering solutions to poverty since kingdom come. And none of them work. But if the church would actually live in obedience to Christ, the church would be able to say, Hey, look, this is what God's reign does. A snapshot of the coming age. A reason for them to say, Yes! A close look at the text, as I've noted, reveals just how important this collection for the poor was to Paul. It's a topic that comes up in many of his letters um, and in the book of Acts in describing his ministry. But note the, 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 the pressure, I don't know what else to call it, that he puts on. I'll just list ten examples in the text we read. Verse 2, for I know your eagerness to help. I know your eagerness to help. So imagine getting a letter from somebody that's asking for you to make a donation. I know how eager you are to get involved in this. Oh, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians. So there's this other church. I've been bragging to them about how much you guys are going to give. Telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them into action. So, oh, Because I've been telling them about you, they're actually giving. Now, of course, if you fell short, then that would maybe make them question why they should keep giving. But I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow. No pressure. 
but that you may be ready as I said you would be. Verse 4, for if the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. I mean, you see what Paul's, Paul's driving at. It's important to him. And he has the Holy Spirit's unction to make this claim upon their lives because he actually believes Jesus truly is the king. He says, finish the arrangements, arrangements for the generous gift that you promised, verse 5. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows generously. For God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, God's love is on the line here. He's putting a lot to bear in this. And then in, in, in verse 9, he quotes from the 112th Psalm about the righteous, that they give they, they freely scattered their gifts to the poor, which by implication, if you want to be among the righteous, you will freely scatter your gifts to the poor. And then maybe the most important thing for Paul is how this will result in praise and thanksgiving to God in verses 11 through 13. The praise will flow directly from the fact that it is an obedience that matches their confession of the gospel. In other words, how we handle our possessions ought to be directly impacted by confession of our belief in the gospel. A sincere belief will result in generous giving. And it's this manna economy upon which the Lord instructs us to pray, give us today our bread for today. Give us today our daily bread, our bread for today. That's rooted in that, that same verse about how they were to collect the manna. Get what you need for the day. Only on the sixth day could they collect two days' worth because they couldn't collect on the seventh day. There would be none. And note, we are called not to pray for me and mine, but for us and our. And the answer to that prayer comes when we don't gather and hoard in a day beyond what our needs are, but share with those in need. We have some direct control over the answer to that prayer. And how we respond to the Lord. So the manna economy is the first thing we're looking at. But it is distinct from the first fruits economy. And that's going to be our second heading. The first fruits economy. Read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll begin in verse 4. We could read the whole chapter once again. But uh, in this case we'll begin in verse 4. This is Paul writing. He says... Don't we have the right to food and drink? He's talking about him and his team. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? That's Peter, Aramaic for Peter. Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock? And does not drink the milk. He's using three different metaphors at, in, at, right in a row here to make his point. Do I say this merely on human authority? Does, doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Quoting from Deuteronomy. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? <laughs> Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so and Hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have 
sown spiritual seed among you? Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. First fruits economy, as I've titled it, may not be the best term to use. There's a lot of ways we could, we could frame it. I'm using that. Let me explain why. Um, it's not really related to strictly the first fruits, but I, first fruits is a principle that covers a lot. And that's why I'm using the term. So um, you can see this principle all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You may eat freely from every tree in the garden, but... There's one tree. Where is it? In the center, the very middle. This core tree, this central tree, that's the one you can't eat from. In other words, it was a recognition, not just a random tree, but this tree. It wasn't what kind of tree it was that was the issue. It was the location of the tree, that it was at the very core and the center of the garden. That tree you can't eat from. Why? Because it's God's, and the minute you eat, you're saying that God's not first. He's not king. They could take nothing from the plunder of Jericho, the first city that they took in the promised land. It was dedicated to the Lord. Of course, they broke that, and that resulted in all sorts of problems. But they could take nothing because it was something dedicated to the Lord. The first fruits of the harvest belonged to God. And the tenth of all their increase belonged to God for the very same reasons, which is why I'm connecting first fruits and tenth and all of that together because it's a principle that we see throughout Scripture. That which belonged to God in the economy of Israel was brought to the priests and Levites who did not have an inheritance like the rest of Israel to work. They didn't have a piece of land here that they would go work and produce harvest on. So people from their land, they worked it and they brought a tenth to the priests and the Levites. Throughout the Old Testament, it was stressed that because they did not have this inheritance, they were to be given a tenth. And at times... They were sent to go work fields, and we find that in reform, they said, no, no, you're not supposed to be doing that. Supposed to, you're supposed to be doing the ministry of the Lord. Paul then capitalizes on that concept and transforms that first fruit temple system economy into a gospel economy by saying that those who spend their time, their life dedicated to the preaching of the gospel should receive their living from the gospel in the same way that the priests and the Levites did, which I'm referring to as first fruits giving. Uh, if you will. This is giving God the first portion of our increase. It wasn't originally designed to pay for overhead of a church building, electric bills and all that, because they met in synagogues and other public buildings, but it was to provide for uh, preachers and ministers of the gospel. Now, these ideas were not original with Paul. He was riffing off of Jesus, and we can make that direct connection in 1 Timothy Chapter 5. So read with me verse 17 and 18 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. The elders, Paul writes, who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. 
By the way, double honor, he's referring to payment. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. That's the same verse we had in Corinthians earlier. Okay. And, and then note this scripture he quotes, the worker deserves his wages. Now note the priority given to preaching and teaching. Or more literally, in word and teaching. It's consistent throughout scripture as a priority. Now, what's fascinating to me, and this is just instructive on another level, it's our understanding of Scripture and, 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 and how the, the, we have our New Testaments. Paul says he's quoting the Scripture. He quotes one from the Old Testament, and that second quote, guess where it comes from? Luke 10, 7 in our Bible. We've, we've got it numbered that way now. This comes right out of Luke's Gospel. So Paul is quoting one of the Gospels we have in our Bibles and calling it Scripture. They had a clear understanding that what was being written at that time was Scripture anointed by the Lord. So that's just a, it's worth noting. But note what he says from Jesus, the worker deserves his wages, referring to those that were going to go preaching the gospel. In fact, in that context, in Luke 10 and its sister verse in Matthew 10, Jesus went so far as to say that if people of the town did not receive you, meaning they did not provide for you, <clears throat> that you were to shake the dust off your feet and move on. So it was no small deal for Jesus. It was a big deal. Now, it's interesting because Paul at Corinth gave up that right. He said, I'm not, I'm not charging you anything. But then he hammers home the point that, by the way, it's still my right that I should have done it. I was laying down my right. But it's that same church that in 2 Corinthians that he's appealing to give to the poor with such heavy emphasis on that. So same group, two different approaches that he took at different times. Paul raises this issue with the Galatians as well. In Galatians 6, you're probably familiar with these verses. He writes, let no one who has taught, I'm sorry, let I'm sorry, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whoever for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In context, and again, we can't go through everything in these verses, but just Highlighting some things. Sowing to the Spirit versus sowing to the flesh means to take our good things, think possessions, and share them with those who feed us God's Word. Now, similar language was used in 2 Corinthians about giving to the poor, that we were, they were sowing generously or sowing sparingly. So this language of sowing and reaping is uh, used in how we treat our possessions. And by the way, I think it's important to note this is not setting up some kind of hierarchy. Oh, these are the people that preach. They have this higher role. Uh, this isn't hierarchy. It's a division of labor, which is shown all the way through the Scriptures. When you share with those who teach, then all the labor that they do to instruct you in God's Word is as much yours as it is theirs. See, in other words, when you show up here on Sunday morning and you hear something from the Word of God, it's like, boom, I never would have seen it that way. 
you're right, but you did see it that way because you participated in the study that made that, so that's your study as much as it is my study or anyone else's study. It's just as much yours as it is mine because you shared in it. Now, if you don't, well, then you got another thing coming, you know. It's only for those who share in it that that, that applies. I mean, it's not a hierarchy when you go to lunch after church today, after you go to your training meeting for NCK. Uh, It's not a hierarchy when you go there and you tip the server. No, they served you, so you're giving them what is their due. You're not saying, oh, you're more powerful than me. You're better or more important than me. No, they're serving you. And that's the same principle that applies to God's Word and its teaching. It's consistent with the principle of first fruits or tenth in the Old Testament. Now, in addition to to the manna economy, the first fruits economy, there is a jubilee economy that we see in Scripture. And this could be certainly an entire sermon in itself. It has been in our past, but I want to take just a little bit of time to highlight it. We see this in Luke chapter 4 and Luke chapter 6. Jubilee economics under that heading. Uh, Beginning in Luke 4, verse 16, he, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the places where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that last phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, really is an encompassing one that covers everything he had just said. I mean, all of that setting free comes together in this year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, verse 20, gave it back to the attendant, Um, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, I'd like to hear the rest of that sermon from him. He began by saying, right? That's his opening line to to what he's going to comment on on that text. I want to hear the rest, but I think we do actually in the rest of Luke's gospel to some degree. I don't have time to make all the connections uh, between Luke's gospel and the Old Testament text, between the year of Jubilee and Sabbath, since the Jubilee year was a Sabbath of Sabbath years that w- when it came about, and that in chapter 6, Jesus is declared to be Lord of the Sabbath. We'll talk about that in a moment. So if he's Lord of the Sabbath, then he's Lord of the Jubilee, which is a form of the Sabbath. So he's Lord over all of that, which is why he could say, today it's fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus doesn't stop, and this this is important. He doesn't stop at proclaiming the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee. Notice how many times proclaiming is emphasized in these verses. To proclaim the good news to the poor, proclaim freedom, uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But he doesn't stop at proclaiming fulfillment of the year of Jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord. He expects his people to live as if this is the new reality. To live as if this is the new reality. The year of Jubilee 
was a year of favor on the poor. It was a year when they were redeemed or released from their debts, forgiven. To announce or proclaim the year of Jubilee is to say, you debt holders must release those debtors from their debts. But how could this be in this community of disciples? Well, if we look at the Old Testament, as far as we know, there's no evidence anywhere that they ever actually celebrated the year of Jubilee. Why? Because, well, the wealthy never liked the idea. It was good news for the poor, and you've guessed it, bad news for the rich. Okay? I mean, just run the math on it for a second. Guy comes and... Yeah, he needs money, so he, he takes out a loan against his property, which you know because he's having a hard time paying it. And well, at the end of seven years, what do you do? It's yours again. Cancel the debt. You're freed. You go back to it. And, and at a bigger level, every 50 years, that same thing would happen. And so this jubilee was problematic in so many ways. It was God's cure for generational poverty. It was a reset on economics every 50 years, ultimately. In Luke's gospel, Jesus' ministry, or his reign as king, begins with the proclamation of the year of people being released from their debts, and there's, uh, uh, then he calls his disciples to live out that release by, by both being released from their sins and releasing others from their debts. The Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel is all about what it looks like to live in Jubilee, to live in God's Sabbath. Right before the sermon, you have that story about Jesus declaring that He's Lord of the Sabbath. And He says that the Sabbath was for doing good and saving life. And the Sermon on the Plain describes what doing good and saving life looks like for us as we live in Jubilee. Notice that as we read through this in a moment. We tend to think of Jubilee as my debts, you know, my sins. They're forgiven. It's the year of Jubilee, and and that's true. But the obedience that matches the profession of that gospel is that we are both forgiven and that we are now to forgive both literal and metaphorical debts, sins, metaphorical debts against us. To not do so removes us from jubilee. We've come out from under that kingdom when we don't forgive and release debts. So Jesus calls us to think in terms of what jubilee calls us to do to others. Luke 6, and I'll just read as a sampling, starting in verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, 
and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you'll be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. In other words, because that's what His image is, and you're now acting in His image. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, or you will, uh, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus, his call to lend and not expect a return is because with his coming, we are in perpetual jubilee. In other words, if we're in perpetual jubilee, I don't have to wait for seven years to release somebody from the debt. The moment I give it, I release them. Oh, I've had people many times, I, I, I just need to borrow money. Well, okay, we'll, 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 we'll give it to you. Well, I'm going to pay it back. Well, you, you can, but know that you're not being held to that. Just be released from that. If they do, fine, we'll give it to someone else. If they don't, fine. We, because that's just how you function in a, year of, or in a time of perpetual jubilee. It never ends in Christ's kingdom. It's perpetual Sabbath, if you will. In Leviticus 20, 25, the, the background for that, uh, in, in, in describing the year of release, jubilee, it help, helps us understand what is meant by lending from those you can't expect repayment. Uh, Bach, in his commentary on Luke, notes that as the year of release from debt approached, referring back to the Old Testament, one was not to become more hesitant to lend because that year was approaching. One was not to be tight-fisted or hard-hearted, but open-hearted, uh, handed to the needy. In other words, you, you're like, next month we're going to have a sa- Sabbath. I'm not doing it now because I lose everything. I don't even get, you know, three years of repayment. It's like, yeah, so what? You can't be tight-fisted. You have to be generous even when you only have a month left. They may not make the first payment. And you're thinking to yourself, that's crazy. I know. <laughs> like, what bank could survive? <laughs> None. That's why this is kingdom economics. We are to function differently. This isn't how you should run a bank, by the way. It's how you should run your life. It's how the church should function. What does it look like living in the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee? Praying for, offering the other cheek, and oh, by the way, your cloak, says shirt in the NIV, but your, your cloak as well as your tunic, giving to the one who begs and not demanding back the possessions taken, lending to those from whom we cannot expect repayment, being kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. You say, this, this just sounds too hard. I know. I mean, that whole cloak and, you know, if they, if they ask for your, um, uh, uh, hang on a second here. I'm going to go read it. Uh, if, if they ask for your coat, don't withhold your shirt. Well, it's cloak. And their, their culture you would be standing there naked if you gave them both of them. Now, it's a bit comical, I get. But the idea is to get you to see, yes, even until you're naked. I mean, if you turn the other cheek, you're not getting a kiss on it. You're getting smacked. I mean, that's the point. And yes, it's in a sense absurd, but it's only absurd to make the point. That he's calling us to something that requires complete and total faith and ultimately faith in the God who raises the dead. 
That's the only way this thing works. You can't get beyond that. If there's no Easter, forget it. Forget it. Jubilee economics is about our posture toward our possessions in relation to others. Loving others supersedes all other rights regarding our possessions. That's kind of the bottom line. So we have a manna economy wherein we care for the poor in our midst. And by our midst, it was like one church or another. You don't have to be in the same congregation. They were miles and miles and miles apart. But they were believers in the church in Jerusalem that Paul was taking a collection for because of hardship there. And so there's taking care of our family of believers because we're a family. There's a first fruits economy, which is the prioritizing God's word in our lives and making sure that that gospel is supported and moving forward with that first fruits of our life. And then there's this jubilee economy, which really just it's, it deals with our entire attitude toward our possessions and money, radically transforming them. Because the interesting thing about Luke 6, everybody who is a disciple is suddenly the rich who forgives everybody else's debts. It doesn't matter if you came in poor. You now forgive everybody else's debts too. There's no distinction. Everybody forgives everybody else's debts, which, you know, you see some similarity to that no distinction aspect with the Philippians who were utterly poor but begging to give. You know, they wanted to be a part of that. They had that attitude, that jubilee attitude toward their very possessions. In order to be a thriving family of believers that bears witness to the inbreaking reign of God, we must live with manna economics, first fruit economics, and jubilee economics in mind. For where our treasure is, there is our heart also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your or as we, we've heard your word, we ask that you would do that most important work in that we respond to your word. That we identify those areas in our hearts and lives that need adjustment because of your word. And that we become doers of your word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.